Carlina Show, where ordinary people share their hero's journey. I'm your host, Carlina Anglin, and this is episode 13 of the podcast. Today on the show, we have Sherry Campbell. Sherry is a social worker and director of a nonprofit hospice home in Tennessee called Welcome Home. She's also the host of a Demystifying Death series, which seeks to bring community members together and provide a space to talk about death and dying. At the end of the episode, two special guests join the conversation. Ricaria Mines and Annie McGuire-Cox recount the circumstances that led them to volunteer at Welcome Home and how their time there has influenced their perceptions about death and dying. You can help support the show by telling your friends about it and rating and reviewing on iTunes. Earlier this week, I received a beautiful letter from Irishman Kevin Gallagher, a longtime friend of our episode 12 guest, Max Baldwin. In the letter, Kevin said it has been a pleasure to know Max and call him his friend for over 40 years. Thank you for reaching out to me, Kevin, and sharing that lovely testament to Max. I see downloads from all over the world and always wonder how someone in Ireland or South Africa or Oklahoma found the podcast. If you love an episode, reach out to me through my website at carlina.net. That's C-A-R-L-E-E-N-A dot net. While there, you can find links to the show notes and sign up to receive notifications of new episodes. I'd also like to thank Stephen Lorca for video editing and production. So we can post our videos to our YouTube channel in addition to the podcast. Now I bring you Sherry Campbell. Okay. Well, hi, Sherry. Hi. <laughs> hi, Carolina. Hey, I'm so glad that uh, we're doing this and I have I'm to have you on the show. Good. Nice to be here. Good, good. So, um, so I have heard about you for about a year now, I'll be honest. And um, just from people in the community that have said, you need to meet Sherry. And so you've been on my radar for a while, and um, and I'm excited that I got to meet you. I guess it was a couple weeks ago or yeah. so I got to meet you. So um, so I'm just, yeah, I'm really excited to sit down and talk to you. And, Thank you. And hear your, your journey. So, Thank you. Well, it's an honor. Thank oh. you. <laughs> so um, if you want to just talk a little bit about what you're doing right now, and then we'll go back and talk about the, the journey of, of how you got here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm with Welcome Home of Chattanooga, and we're a nonprofit hospice home for people that have nowhere to go for end of life. So um, not many people know that if you are uh, referred to hospice that you either have hospice in your home or in a nursing home. And nursing homes are limited. They um, they don't have a lot of beds. Many of their beds are skilled, meaning you uh, break your hip, you go in, you get better, and you go back home. So the number of long-term care beds are are very limited. Um, So as a hospice social worker for years, we kept meeting people that had nowhere to go for end of life. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started Welcome Home. We're a five-bedroom non-medical facility. We're mostly uh, volunteer-driven. And what I love is that we partner with the area hospices to, they come in and provide the hospice care, Mm -hmm. and we provide the family and the 24-hour care mm-hmm. and lots of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. And then is there anything else that you want to share about um, just personal life or anything like that right now that you're, just anything yeah. like that? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I'm a very proud grandmother of three. Um, that's a new role for me, and I'm very happy. And um, a longtime resident of Chattanooga and a social worker from that graduated from UTC and Southern Adventist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Good. Thank you. Yeah. So, are you originally from this area? I've been here most of my life. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, tell me a little about a little bit about your like your childhood, um, your formative years, and what kind of led you to led you to do this type of work. Um. That's a great question. <laughs> I think um, most I I had a you know normal life, normal um, kid growing up in the seventies and the eighties. Um, I think that I always felt like a outcast though. So in school I was um, whatever you call them, a freak or a geek or a nerd, I, w I was one of the outcasts. And that led me into social work or to um, really wanting to um, help other outcasts or, or people like me. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, but mm -hmm. um, I think out of that, um, I had um, serious social anxiety when I was growing up. And... Lots of self-doubt. I think we all do. I think especially in the 70s, um, it was just a different time. And um, so out of that grew uh, wanting to help people. And at UTC, I was in the School of Psychology. And they, my advisor there thankfully um, asked me more about what my goals and visions were for my future. And he led me to the School of Social Work. Mm -hmm. And it I fell in love. I, I was right. That was my home. Mm -hmm. Do you come from a family of social workers, or how, how did that work out? Was it a, just a, a mentor or a professor that that suggested it to you, or? I came from. Um, my mom is a hardworking, um, old school nurse, and um, she was a single mom. Uh, and my my grandmother was a single. I come from a long line of single mothers, and. Um, always all of the I think you know looking back on my heritage it was just always ingrained in us to help other people mm -hmm. or to love other people mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay and um, so so you went to school for psychology and then you went to did you go to grad school right after or did you have some time in between I had um, about 25 years in between undergrad and graduate school. So I was not going to go back to graduate school, but I was encouraged by a friend okay. um, to go back. So I went back in, I think, 2008. 2008, mm -hmm. okay. And what did you do in the 25 years in between? <laughs> I was a social worker um, for, I started out at the homeless health care clinic uh -huh. and then um, moved forward and over the years ended up at hospice. Uh -huh. And... Um, really felt my passion there and knowing that that's where I wanted to be and um, a lot of people say that hospice care is um, depressing and when I tell people what I do I often get I don't know how you could do that that must be so depressing but actually it's very holy and sacred ground mm -hmm. um, to be with someone at the end of life and to um, walk with them during that time. Mm -hmm. um, so. do, you, do you remember a couple 
instances or a couple of people um, that kind of stick out to you? That oh, <laughs> so many beautiful people. Any any stories you, you could share? I, I, I guess there's so many beautiful people that I've met. Um, James is one of them, and I, I've told James this story um, many times, mm -hmm. um, but he he will just always have a special place in my heart. He came to us. He had been living in condemned housing, mm -hmm. and uh, I went to see him, and I always wonder what it's like when I go to on the other side, mm -hmm. when I go tell people about Welcome Home, and here's this girl that they don't know, mm -hmm. this strange woman telling them about, oh, why don't you come to this place? Mm -hmm. And they say yes. Uh, that it still kind of shocks me. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I would want to like delve into a little bit more. Uh -huh. um, but when I went to see James, he, he uh, agreed to come. And I was um, very honored that he allowed us to care for him. Um, he was this beautiful man with uh, long, silvery, gray hair and these still shiny blue eyes. And he could cuss like crazy. He was crusty and crabby. <laughs> Um, I just loved him. And one day, he had been here about a month, and we were sitting out on the porch, and he asked, uh, I asked him um, if we should call anybody. I noticed he was getting sicker, and um, if there was anybody that we should call for him. And he just kind of looked at me strange, and I think he cussed me out. I can't remember his response, but I let it go. Mm -hmm. But a few days later, he came to me and said, what did you mean by calling somebody? And I just told him, I said, you know, there's got to be, you're, you're 69 years old, there's got to be somebody in your life mm -hmm. that would want to know that you're here. And he immediately said, I want to call my sister Polly. And he still remembered her phone number. Uh, so I wondered how many nights he laid in bed thinking about calling that number. Mm -hmm. um, and he asked me to sit with him, and he called her. And that just took a lot of courage, and it changed my life and how I want to treat other people. Um, I still remember his words to her. He said, Polly, this is your brother James. I'm okay, but they tell me I'm dying, and I just wanted you to know. And she came, and then she brought her other sisters and uh, their family, the rest of the family, and so over the next few weeks, we had more and more people coming to visit James and being with him and mm -hmm. laughing and sharing memories of the James he was born to be, mm -hmm. the James he was before whatever hit him and knocked him into that condemned house where I met him. Mm -hmm. um, he was just a beautiful man and his family. I'll just never forget them responding in love. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody ever said, I'm sorry, or... Will you forgive me? But there was so much love here when he died. They were keeping vigil. They were with him when he passed away. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes it, it was just a really good reminder for me on how mm -hmm. I want to treat mm -hmm. my family members and do I really want to walk away from them um, over a Monopoly game. I haven't, I joke about this a lot. I have. My sister and I got in a fight over a Monopoly game. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk for about six months after that. And now, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> I was right, but um, 
is that something, you know, that we really want to mm -hmm. walk away from, right. that relationship over something so silly? Yeah. And I, um, I was talking to a group of women today and thinking how our current political climate has even divided families mm -hmm. and that I pray that we're more intentional and that and not letting go of folks over mm -hmm. um, politics and mm -hmm. or whatever's happening in yeah. our country. Yeah. Wow, that's a really nice story. His name is his name was James. Uh -huh. James. Yeah. And he was a resident here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and what year did you open Welcome Home? We opened March two thousand fifteen. So we've been open for three years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So after you graduated from. Um, College. You said that there were 25 years in between that and going to grad school, mm -hmm. um, and you worked for hospice during that time? I worked for hospice for about 12 years. Okay, mm -hmm. and that was, some of the time was before you went to, to grad school. Mm -hmm. And can you talk a little bit about those years in hospice and how the, your, the, the idea for this place sort of grew in your mind or how, mm -hmm. yeah, if you yeah. could talk a little bit about that, like what you saw that influenced your decision. Um, well, I, I was stationed as a social worker for hospice um, uh, in many different places. And at one point they had me at the, the hospice unit at Memorial Hospital, mm -hmm. one of our local hospitals. And then at another point we were at, um, I was stationed at the care center. And both of those stations uh, part of my job as a social worker there was to discharge people to back to home. So they would come to the hospital or come to the care center and get stabilized. Mm -hmm. They were still in need of um, hospice care, but they were stable and didn't need that 24-7 care. Mm -hmm. And many times there was no place to discharge people to, or they were going back to pretty despairing circumstances, and that really bothered me um, as a former outcast. <laughs> um, you know, Can I just, you describe some of the places that you had to send them back to? Um, to an apartment where they didn't have anybody checking on them or someone um, bringing them a milkshake or mm -hmm. saying how you doing or watching a um, MASH rerun. Mm -hmm. with them, or even back to the streets sometimes, back to a extended stay hotel, um, to maybe a brother that didn't really want them there. And so I started, uh, me and another social worker, Rachel Smith, we started, um, after hours, we started dreaming about having, how there needs to be this home for people that had nowhere to go for end of life. Again, outcast. Yeah. Um, so, and we initially dreamed of this big uh, farm home, farmhouse up in Dunlap or in some rural area. And we kept saying, someone needs to do this. this we need a place for people to go. And it wasn't until after grad school, we, we dreamed about this for years and talked about it for years. It wasn't until after grad school, and then I had a few things that happened in my personal life um, that I realized we were the ones that were to do it, um, that we were the ones being called to do it. And so we started reaching out and um, just putting one foot in front of the other to make it work. 
So these events that happened in, in your personal life, did they help kind of redefine the way that you saw the work that you were doing or what could be done? The events that happened in my life caused me a lot of pain. And um, is there anything that you would, that you could mention? Or? Well, I, I had, I just, I found myself in this big home um, where I had raised, we had raised our children and they were grown and out of the house and, um, and I was in this big empty home by myself mm-hmm. and it was pretty lonely. Um, and I think that's what got me to thinking about, um, just out of that, I thought I have nothing to lose. I, this, this is something that I want to do and I want to make sure that, um, that in whatever way I can that I'm able to help people that have been told that they're dying, that they're not sitting, that they're not, um, sitting in an apartment all alone, mm-hmm. you know, wondering if anybody cares about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So um, you and, and Rachel sort of dreamed about this years, mm-hmm. years ago. And um, at, at what point did you decide, so you said that there are things that happened in your life, and then after that you decided to take the steps towards realizing mm-hmm. this dream? Is that what happened? Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, we went and talked to everyone. Um, we made a list of all of the people in the area um, that we thought might be able to help us. We went to um, the president of CHI Memorial, one of our local hospitals, um, and she very kindly met with us. We had some mentors that um, shared information with us that were very free and open with well, you need to go and talk to this person or this person. It was a long journey. It was about three years um, of meeting with people, moving forward, a lot of discouragements, but we just, you know, we kept going. We had enough encouragement to keep the discouragements from um, getting us too low. And what was the discouragement? Was that things that people said to you, or was it... Just it was take, it taking too much time, or what were some of the discouragements? Time was a big one because mm-hmm. um, we we thought, all right, well, you know, we can um, get this done within a year. This is no problem. But mm-hmm. um, we wanted it done right away because mm-hmm. we were still working for a hospice and still seeing the need. Um, and once we decided that we were going to do this the need became even more present because mm-hmm. our eyes were open to, oh, this person really needs, you know, so our eyes were more open. Um, so we were very antsy. So I think time was very discouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, for the most part, were encouraging. We had a couple of naysayers, but um, Rachel and I just decided that they weren't meant to be part of our journey. So we just blessed them and... Um, let them move along and just kind of surrounded ourselves with mm-hmm. the encouragers, the people that say, you need to go here and go and talk to this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it was and we about, had some really good, men, yeah. really good people. Yeah. Could you describe a couple or, you don't have to mention their names or where yeah. they work, but just kind of some, some things that you heard that were encouraging or. Um, 
I think our biggest encouragement were the people, just the idea of knowing that there were people out there that needed us. And mm -hmm. so that inspired us and kept us moving forward. Um, one of my favorite mentors, um, I met her, she is a development director here in town, and she met with us and just kind of schooled us on um, a nonprofit and raising funds and where to go and who to ask for funding. Um, she was just very honest and open with us, mm -hmm. and I loved that because we met some people along the, our journey that weren't so forthcoming with information. I, th I think some people mm -hmm. um, are worried, are scared to let go of information. Mm -hmm. um, but there were um, at least three people like that that um, sat and took time to mm -hmm. give us information because we're social workers. We're not, we weren't um, business leaders. We had, uh, we were working for a nonprofit. Not, most of my work has been, been a nonprofit, mm -hmm. but I've never been a manager or wrote a grant or raised donations. None of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was nice to have those people yeah. that so willingly shared information. Yeah. And that's who Rachel and I decided that we wanted to be that, if someone came to us looking for help on how to start a home or how to um, start a nonprofit, we wanted we strive to be like those folks mm -hmm. that helped us. Yeah. We want to be like that. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. And if you wanted to mention their names, you know, the people that have helped you, I mean, you, you, you can give shout outs. That's okay. <laughs> well, um, Pete Cooper, who's with the Community Foundation, um, was... I expected to meet with him for about 30 minutes, and I was in there for two hours. He took two hours of his time with me, and I still meet with him annually. I'll call him up, and he, he's retired now, but um, he'll, he'll come and check into my progress. And uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah, he gave me uh, water through a, what did he call it, a fire hydrant. He just schooled me on nonprofits, and I loved. I ate up every minute of it. Uh -huh. um, Jennifer Nicely, who is with one of our local hospitals, um, has just been incredible. And then Barbara Martyr, who's uh, with a foundation here in town. Yeah. Um, well, there's been many. We've had many, many encouragers, but um, in those early days, those were the three that kind of. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got us down the road. Okay. Yeah. And then can you describe the initial stages of opening this place? Like where it went from just an empty building to yeah. full of residents? Yeah. Well, um, we had, um, we, I do want to mention this. We received a big, our big break was with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee and that they um, awarded us an unbelievable grant that lasted for three years, our first three years. Um, once we received that grant, I was able to leave my job. I'm very grateful to them for that big break. Um, so I was able to leave my job, and I actually lived here the first six months. Don't <laughs> do that. Don't ever live where you work. Um, was that while residents were here? Mm-hmm. Can you describe that? Like why why you shouldn't live where you work? <laughs> no, I there was just no 
privacy and no time off. But I told God, I said, I'm going to live here for the first three years. And um, to, to get it off the ground. And, I'm, and I lasted six months. I'm sure that God was like, you just go on and try that, Sherry. You try that three years. Let's see how long you last. I'm sure mm -hmm. he had a, a big laugh about that. Um, but we, um, before we opened, we had uh, people come through, uh, a lot of Blue Cross Blue Shield employees, a lot of my friends, my family come through and help clean up Welcome Home. We pulled up carpet. We painted. All the furniture throughout the house has been donated. Um, we have had to buy very little. Um, even our landlord donated the sprinkler system, which was a huge expense. Um, and we took our first resident. His name was um, Sonny. And then we got brave and were able to take two at a time. And we just gradually grew. Um, because we didn't have any staff and we didn't have a lot of volunteers at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, Rachel and I um, just kind of took care of one another in those first few months, really mm -hmm. the first six months, until we felt comfortable to, to hire staff. And yeah. um, we um, hired someone to help me with the overnights. Okay. Can you describe when you met these first few residents, with like the maybe pick one or two, where you actually, the first time you met them face-to-face, -face, the first time you told them they were going to come and live here, them moving in, can you, like, talk about that process a little bit? Mm -hmm. I, I think with all of our residents, all but a few of them, the first few days are a, a little hard because they're, they're trying, they come from, they're trying to just figure it out and settle in. Mm -hmm. And many of our residents haven't been in a place where they can trust other people. Um, they've had to have their guard up. And so it takes a few days to kind of let your guard down and, mm -hmm. and realize that you're in a safe place. Mm -hmm. And what are, what are some of the conditions where um, they come from? Well, mo many of our residents have been homeless. Not all of them, but mm -hmm. many of them um, have been homeless. One of our residents was living in his car um, for seven months. He says that all the time, seven months he's living in his car. Mm -hmm. um, but he was living in Crown Victoria, and he does say that if you're going to be living in your car, the Crown Victoria is the way to go. Um, so he, he has a good sense of humor about it. Uh -huh. um, but it I, he would, when he first moved here, he would spend a lot of time still in his car, because that was his safe place. So it's just been, it was gradual for him um, to leave his car behind mm -hmm. and, to, and to realize that he was safe here. Right. So he, his car is parked outside. He's still with us. So he would come and uh -huh. he would go sit in his car and listen to his radio and yeah. um, be in his safe place. And then he'd come back in for dinner or whatever. Can you talk about how the residents have made this place their home, either with their relationship with each other or with the volunteers or hospice staff that come in? How, how this place is, has become a home for, for everybody who comes in? That's very important for us. Um, I think many of our volunteers have their have special relationships. Well, all of our volunteers have special relationships with each uh, resident. They have... Um, 
secret jokes between them and um, I, uh, just special relationships of uh, like one, many of our volunteers will take one of our residents um, out fishing um, it, it's been and you know what many of our volunteers are lonely too mm -hmm. um, they might be divorced or widowed or single and so they come here for um, you know, to help, but end up finding family and friendships here. Mm -hmm. And that's been nice. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, um, and then we all have formed a, a, a little family, all of us, the volunteers and the residents. We had a candlelight service for one of our residents Friday night, and I thought four or five people would show up, but we had over 15. And for about an hour and a half, they sat, we all sat in the sunroom sharing stories about our resident who had only been with us for about four months. Mm -hmm. But I heard stories that I hadn't heard before because each volunteer who had been sitting in her room, sitting with her, had a different story to tell. Um, and so that was really nice. It was really nice to have a group of people sitting in a room on a Friday night laughing together, sharing stories that a year ago None of us even knew one another. Were there any other other personal stories? Any other residents that uh, stick out to you that kind of brought everybody together? Oh, that brought everybody. To, yeah, we, I have several residents that have. Well, all of them have made a great impact on us and changed our lives forever. Um, Charles came to us. Um, it's been over two years. He was with us. Um, in fact, he died two years ago this weekend. Um, he was a big guy. He was a truck driver. He got sick while he was on the road. And um, his, he had been staying in a boarding house, house up in New Jersey, but he got sick here in Chattanooga. He had been a Marine, and he was a, a cook in the Marines. And so all that comes with being a Marine came here to welcome home and being a truck driver. Uh, his initial plan was to stay here for two or three weeks, build his strength back up, and go back to his boarding home in New Jersey where his friends were. But after being here for a few weeks, um, we helped him get his plane ticket to New Jersey. Um, we had all fallen in love with him. And he sat me down one night and he said, I don't, if I go to New Jersey, can I come back? And I said, of course you can. In fact, I was like, please come back, um, because he was one of us now, you know. And he said, I think what I'm going to do is go up there and just clean up my room, but I want to come back here. This is where I want to be. And I was very honored. Um, now, Charles was uh, a talker, and uh, he, so he drove me crazy sometimes, as we do. We're like family here, so, you know, we driving each other crazy every once in a while. Um, but one of the things I found out that I wasn't aware of until I got a phone call from a very rattled volunteer, uh, she called me one evening and said, Sherry, I've been all over town looking for this ingredient, and I can't find it. And I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? She goes, well, Charles wants me to fix this dish for him, and I can't find this ingredient anywhere. That's the key ingredient for 
what you want. She goes, now I can go on Amazon and buy it. And I said, no, 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 stop. And so I went upstairs and I discovered that Charles had been, he had gotten a phone and he had um, started putting together these dinners. He had found um, out about that you could find recipes online and he had, he started saving these and then he started directing our volunteers on him, them coming in and helping, helping him, not cooking it for him, but helping him cook these meals. Mm -hmm. I had no idea this was going on. And it was, I think, the third time after I got this phone call, and I was here late one evening and heard a lot of commotion upstairs. And Charles was sitting in the middle of the kitchen giving out orders to about five volunteers that weren't scheduled to be here, but he had brought them in to make this meal. And I was just so frustrated with him. I'm like, Charles, you're gonna, we're gonna lose volunteers over this. We can't treat people this way. Um, but he didn't listen to me, and it, it, he just <laughs> continued to um, plan these dinners, and they were wonderful meals. Um, the thing that touches me to my heart and soul, though, is when we had his memorial after he died. Uh, we planned his memorial to be a potluck dinner, and we had over 30 people show up for his memorial. It was one of the biggest memorial services, and I was sitting in the dining room, and I looked into the kitchen, and all of these volunteers were in the kitchen moving around, rustling around, just like they were, you know, when Charles was given orders. But they were laughing and smiling and, and making friends with each other and, um, and putting a meal together. And I just sat back and I said, Charles, you cre Charles created that. He mm -hmm. created that lovely moment where people were making friends and, and putting this dinner together like he was still sitting in the kitchen. They wanted it to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And it was a perfect night. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty certain that Charles was there. He was probably gloating. <laughs> and so these volunteers, they all kind of had different backgrounds? Yeah. Or different, okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we have uh, Republicans and Democrats. We have very conservative Christians. We have um, people from all different faith backgrounds. But in that kitchen, everybody gets along. And they're... There's not, none of those lines. So, and that was happening that night that we had the potluck. That um, it didn't matter what was going on outside of Welcome Home. Here, there was a lot of love going through, and I feel like Charles had them all rehearsing for his memorial mm -hmm. dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I like it was that nice. story. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and I know you also do a lot of education about death. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that and maybe what you're hoping to do with um, the different workshops and presentations you have? Oh, thank you for letting me talk about that. I believe that, um, or we believe at Welcome Home that over the past 50 years, we have mystified death. We have made it um, scary, taboo. Uh, we don't talk about it. And we don't need to dwell on death, but... Um, I, I think it serves us better when we do talk about our wishes. Uh, I think it uh, serves our children better when 
um, we're not putting it in a hospital or in a nursing home, um, that we, we get back to our roots of being okay with caring for those who are dying. Um, often when someone gets a terminal illness, people stop visiting them because they don't know what to say or what to do. Or even if someone has died, um, we don't know how to visit a grieving family because we don't want to say the wrong thing. So we really want to um, make it uh, okay to talk about it and to talk about our wishes. Uh, I just I've been married for a few years, and just this year, I my husband and I went to. People are going to think I'm really uncool when I say this. Oh, we I went so. to it. <laughs> we went to a death over dinner event where you are served a lovely dinner and you talk about dying. And at that event, I found out that my husband does not want to linger, that he wants to um, die suddenly, that he even said he wants to go off to a cave and, and be alone. He's very worried about being a burden on someone, on me. And, you know, I, that shocked me because... Um, I would want him to stick around for a couple of days so, you know, we can be with him. So we had some words over there. <laughs> but um, these are things that we need to talk about. We need to make sure our children know. Um, and that, and, and, and we need to be able to talk about why we're uncomfortable talking about it with someone who's dying. How can we go visit someone who's terminally ill? How can we comfort them? Um, and that's, we want to really change that, at least in this part of the world, mm -hmm. in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we have um, our education programs where we talk about different um, aspects of um, death and dying. And then we have um, a death cafe, and we're going to have a death over dinner event in February of next year. Um, and just to get people more comfortable talking about it again. Yeah. I remember when I was a little girl, we would go spend summers in Chattahoochee, Georgia with my grandparents. And while I was there, while we were there one summer, my grandfather had a stroke and we took care of him. Um, it was, we were little, but um, that was just expected of us to help take care of our grandfather. Um, the next summer he died while we were there and it wasn't anything unusual for us. I, I do remember very vividly that the funeral home brought him, his coffin, his body back to the house. And he sat, the coffin sat in the plastic room. Do you know what the plastic room is? Mm -mm. It's maybe somebody else out there mm -hmm. does. Yeah, um, I'm sure. It's the only room in the house that, it's the room in the house that has a plastic over the still has the plastic over the furniture. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it, um, at the time, this was back in the 70s. So, and at the time, um, it was the only room in the house that was carpeted. And there was plastic runners on the carpet, and so you could only walk on the plastic runners. Uh -huh. And uh, for some reason, I remember this room being red, but I'm certain it wasn't a red room. I think that's just what stuck in my mind. But I remember um, that was the only time we were allowed to go in there was when he was there, and we were yeah. um, having, we didn't call it a wake. I don't remember, because that's not really a southern term. 
But he sat there um, for visitation. We had family coming in and bringing cakes and food, and it was just very normal for us. Um, I think we need to get that back to to that, mm -hmm. and not not be scared of um, someone dying, mm -hmm. um, because making it that way can create a lot of loneliness for people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if someone else is out there like you, you know, maybe doing social work or some sort of work where they're seeing this need on a daily basis and they really want to do something about it, um, what advice would you give to them to kind of go through the path or go through a path mm -hmm. to get to where they actually have a, a nonprofit or a business that's, you know, that's, that's meeting the need that they, mm -hmm. that they see? I think what was key for me and Rachel was going out and meeting with people um, and assessing the community. We already knew that there was a need for this. So that, um, I would encourage others to do that assessment. Who else is doing this in our community? Who can we pair up with? And that was part of our journey is, you know, did anybody else want to pair up with what we were doing? Can we join forces? Mm -hmm. um, so. Part of our journey was just um, doing the community assessment, interviewing all of our key stakeholders, and building momentum and getting that encouragement behind us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, what other? What are your plans for the future? What are your dreams for the future? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big dreamer. Um, I. You know, I have a big dream of a bigger home or more homes um, to help more people. We keep a waiting list. I also see a big need for not just people that are terminally ill, but many don't know that if you, are, if you have cancer, if you're diagnosed with cancer and you need treatment, if you don't have shelter, you don't get that treatment until you have shelter. So I would love to have... Um, a place or a community for people that need medical respite, that need shelter so they can get the treatment they need, or um, instead of someone um, having major heart surgery and being discharged back to the street right away, maybe having a landing place for a little while before they go back to wherever they want to be, or helping them find, have it given them shelter until they can find, we can help them find that. A permanent home. Mm -hmm. So having a, a shelter where they can receive the chemo and the treatment that they need mm -hmm. um, and then hopefully finding a, a transition. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. I dream of this um, big community of, um, I don't want to scare people out there, um, of just um, taking care of our community sick and poor. And so they're now they're struggling. I know several people right now that can't get the chemo that they need because they don't have shelter. Mm -hmm. And that I don't know how I would fare with that if that were me. Mm -hmm. Are there other places? Because I know that you've gone to national conferences mm -hmm. to talk about about this. Um, are there any places that are doing this right, or that are doing you know that you would aspire to, like any other states or cities? Oh yeah, our friends um, at the uh, with the in between, 
they're in Salt Lake City and they're doing wonderful work. They're about the same age that we are. Um, then Joseph's House is in Washington, D.C., and they've been around for over 25 years, and they're, they're our mentors. Um, they uh, are doing a wonderful job caring for um, the folks in D.C. Mm -hmm. and with their primary focus on um, the homeless. Mm -hmm. There are hospice homes across the country, uh, and not all of them are primarily focused on our brothers and sisters who are homeless. So is there anything, anything else that, that you want to mention? Anything else you want to leave people with? No, I um, thank you for listening and thank you for giving me this opportunity to share about Welcome Home. Yeah. It's been nice. Yeah. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. So, yeah. I appreciate it, Carlita. <laughs> Well, hello. <laughs> so you're you're a volunteer. We just pulled you downstairs to, to come talk to us. So, yes. so what what is your name? My name is Rakiria Mines. Okay. And so, um, tell tell us just a little bit about you. Um, I'm 23 years old. I work for the Department of Children's Services. Um, I just graduated college last year, and I volunteer for Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I also volunteer here. Okay. So you're you're really busy. Yes, yeah, very busy, very busy. My schedule is very crazy mm -hmm. and all over the place, but yeah. Okay, so why did you decide to volunteer here? Um, when I graduated college, um, when I was in college, I volunteered a lot of different places, but most of those volunteers were connected to my college. Um, so when I graduated, I wanted to volunteer other places. Um, so I got on the United Way website, and I looked at places that needed volunteers in my area. Um, and I saw, I came across Welcome Home, and I thought I'd be interested. Um, so I came to orientation, I toured, um, and I loved it, so I've been volunteering for over a year now, um, since last August. Okay, Yeah. okay. So, um, so talk a little bit about your experience volunteering here. Um, well, it depends on the day and who I'm spending the day with. Um, I do a lot of different activities. Um, when I'm with one of the residents, Robbie, I usually paint her nails or we'll watch something on TV or mm -hmm. we'll go over the ads. Um. If I'm doing something with Frederick, usually me and Frederick might um, go in the garage, we'll play pool, or he'll teach me how to play another game. He usually always beats me, <laughs> um, no matter what it is. Or he'll tell me how to do something in the yard. It just depends on what Frederick's got going that day. Um, if I'm with Terry, me and Terry usually watch the news and yell at the TV, <laughs> the politicians or anything. Uh -huh. um, we'll do quite a few things, me and Terry. We'll sit in her room. Um... With Frank, we usually sit outside, and he'll tell me about the unions, and unions are the best thing you could ever do. Um, in his days as a truck driver or anything else you could think of, we talk about cars a lot, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. so it just depends on the different day, but we do a lot of different activities, but it's never a dull moment around here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what do you think... Um, People don't understand about homelessness, like people who maybe not don't work here or aren't social workers, just out in the general public. What do you? What? What are some misconceptions? I think a lot of people think that homelessness is because you know something that somebody did. I guess they were irresponsible that led to their homelessness, and people don't understand how hard it is once you become homeless to get back on your feet or to find those resources. Um, and then especially if there's certain barriers like transportation or income, then that makes it even harder um, when you're homeless. I mean, there are resources out there, but 
like I said, when you don't have transportation and a lot of things depend on your address and where you live. So if you're homeless, then you can't really give an address mm -hmm. to, you know, get certain services and things. But yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that people need to know about homelessness is homeless people aren't necessarily homeless because just because they're irresponsible, there are things that cause people to become homeless. And once they're homeless, it is really hard to get back on your feet and not be homeless. Yeah. Have your perceptions changed since you started volunteering here? Um, I would say my perceptions changed about afterlife care and the cost of afterlife care. Um, before I worked here, I didn't know how expensive it was um, for senior citizens or people that needed afterlife care. And before I started volunteering here, I wasn't aware of certain barriers where if you had certain things on your record or insurance could cause you um, to not be able to get those services and you know, what do you mean expensive. by what do you mean by afterlife care? Um, so if you're on hospice, you know, depending on if you have like a felony or certain things on your background um, or certain things medically, then you won't be able to receive the same services for people on hospice care. Well, not that you won't be able to receive them, but it can make them harder for you to get into a facility or to get certain services. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so is there anything else that you want to share? Anything else that you want people to know? Um, I've learned a lot of things about a lot of diff different illnesses. They may not necessarily be terminal that become, can become terminal, um, for volunteering here. Um, I learned a lot about HIV and AIDS. They had a guy come in, um, and I learned a lot more information about HIV and AIDS that a lot of people don't know. Um, and I just feel like there's a misconception um, about people with HIV and AIDS. So I did learn a lot um, from being here. I have learned a lot about a lot of different types of illnesses, even mm -hmm. ones that are not necessarily terminal, but right. can become terminal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Um, I think people think that hospice is very sad and I want to say like depressing, um, but it, sometimes it's my best days is when I come here and spend time with, um, with them and that could be from the people that live here to the workers. You know, it's a great environment. And people focus on, you know, they feel like it's sad. Um, but, you know, after volunteering here for so long, it's like a really great pleasure um, for you to be the last people that they get to see. Do you get to sit with them at the end of their life, you know, their last few hours, you know. Um, people just, whatever they think their hospice is, is not what they think it is. And especially after volunteering, I've also noticed that. Wow. Well, thank you. You're welcome. That was really good. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so tell me, what is your name, first of all? I don't think I even asked you what your name is. I don't know yours either. Oh. I'm Annie. <laughs> I'm Carlina. Nice, nice to, to meet you, you, Carlina. You're just another volunteer we pulled from upstairs. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I just came falling well. down the stairs. <laughs> okay, so... Annie, welcome on the show. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so tell me a little bit about you. So, are we going to look at the camera? Or are we going to look at you? You can look at wh wherever you want. I yeah. feel better looking at you. Okay, that's All good. Right. So, just tell me a little bit about you. Um, I live here in Chattanooga. I've been here for a long time, and I raised my family here. And I'm exceptionally happy to have found Sherry and Welcome Home Chattanooga last year. You found them last year. Mm -hmm. And how did you find them? Um, it was an, one of those 
uh, divine appointments. I don't look at Facebook a lot, but I happened to see a blurb that my friend posted about one of um, the demystifying death and dying seminars. That's actually going to happen this Thursday, another mm -hmm. one. Um, I happened to see that, and I went, ooh, that's interesting. And I showed up and met these wonderful people, and I've been connected ever since. Okay. So what was it that, that drew you to that meeting? Um, I have a lot of experience with death and dying. How come? Um, I have birthed eight children, and I have buried two of them. And at the point that I met Sherry and the group, I had just um, completed a year-long um, adventure, is the best way to put it, with a, a, a friend that I made because he said, uh, Annie, I hear you study belief systems. And I said, yeah, you could say that. And he said, well, I'd like to study death. I said, okay, that sounds good. And... Um, we proceeded to talk for two hours that night and found out that he had a terminal illness and he was legally blind and he wanted to do some studying. So we started connecting and I met with him for, started off one day a week and we read together and we started putting things in order and he grew into a dear, dear, dear friend. Mm -hmm. And I helped him put his things in order. I was the first call after the daughter and hospice were called by his wife the mm -hmm. night that he died. Oh, wow. And I stayed with them through the night till everything was finished. And um, it was right after that that I found Sherry. And I was like, it's perfect. Because there's a lot of mystification and misinformation and almost a taboo subject mm -hmm. for a lot of people to talk about. And I really enjoy opening up taboo things that really need to be talked about mm -hmm. because it's common everybody dies mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so why is it such a taboo subject yeah I don't know <laughs> why do you why do you think it is is it our culture or is it well the West in general yeah you know if you look back centuries and and over the centuries of the Eastern cultures death is normal they recognize everybody does it, mm -hmm. but in the, in the West, it's become a um, it's become taboo because if you can keep something mysterious, now this is probably propaganda, but um, if you can keep something taboo, you can make money from it because people are afraid of it. Oh, I never thought of it that way. That's interesting. Huh? It's a huge business. Yeah, yeah. So, so you met Sherry, and then did you start volunteering here right after meeting Sherry? Or? I did. Yeah, I came to her orientation class immediately after the demystifying death, and it was right before their huge conference. Mm -hmm. their, their, it was their second or third second conference, and and I turned in my application to be a volunteer on a Friday, and went to the seminar on Saturday, and mm -hmm. met all these beautiful people, and. Um, I've been volunteering here at least every couple weeks, mm -hmm. often at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. I come in and mm -hmm. love on everybody and get loved on. What do you think um, people in the general public don't understand about homelessness? Hmm. General public, what they don't understand about homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, I think the general public public doesn't realize that it could be them. It could be anybody. It could be you. 
be me. We don't know. Mm-hmm. The people that are homeless, most of them didn't choose it directly. Mm-hmm. It was a series of choices that led them to there. Mm-hmm. And any of us can make some seriously misguided choices mm-hmm. that can seriously land us in places we didn't expect to be. Choices like what, for example? Mm, could be anything. Any kind of relationship that you break, whether it's a financial relationship or a personal relationship or a, uh, it might be a family relationship. If you, if you damage and hurt people, you'll, it causes stress and strain that can put you in a place where you can't do what you always did. Or people don't want you to do what you always did, and you have to find a new place. And in the transition, you might not have a place to be. Mm-hmm. And how has working here, or volunteering here, how has that changed your perceptions of, of homelessness or terminal illness? Changed it? I'm not sure how it's changed it, but what it has is it's it's fanned the flame of needing to do something to help to and whatever that something might be it might be as simple as getting somebody a Kleenex or it might be as complex as raising 10 million dollars and starting new homes in all places mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, what is what is your your dream for um, we, you know, you have Welcome Home. What is your dream? How, how could Welcome Home grow, or how could a place like this grow? <laughs> That's so funny you ask it that way. Um, one of the things that I've done in my life is I have invested in real estate in all over the country, and what I see happening is, is taking that background into helping grow more of these places. Uh, I know lots of people all over the country, and there's lots of people that have huge hearts to help. And some people have huge hearts to help that have huge, deep pockets. <laughs> and they love to help. And I think getting this going where we want it to go, where it needs to go to help populations that are homeless and dying at the same time, um, we just need to let, get the word out. And what you're doing is going to help that. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. Every, everybody we talk and touch mm-hmm. can lead us to the more people that can help. Right. You never right. know who you're going to talk to. Yeah, yeah. So is there anything else that you want to share? Anything else that people should know? People should know about Welcome Home Chattanooga. Um, or no, just about anything in general. I mean, just oh god, yeah, starting a nonprofit. I've been waiting for this moment a long time. This is your moment. (laughs) What do people need to know? (laughs) Wow, I wish I'd prepared for this one. Um, What do people need to know? I think that we each create our own reality, whether we know it or not. And the more that we know that we're creating it, the more deliberate we can be, and the more we can create what we prefer. Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs)